Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians, in chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4. One of the, um, one of the many, many roles that a mom plays is um, issuing warnings, right? Warnings, all kinds of warnings. Sometimes the warnings are, you know, don't touch that, uh, don't stand there, don't climb on that because, what, it's hot, it's going to fall, you're going to get hurt, something like that. Sometimes the warnings are... This is your last warning. You know, sometimes that's what the warnings are. This is the last warning. Uh, and uh, all kinds of warnings. And I know my mom gave me lots of warnings when I was a, a kid. But, um, but uh, there was one thing that she didn't warn me about. And I, I can't believe it. I mean, it seems so obvious that you would, you would warn somebody. And, and she's here today. She probably, probably, she probably remembers this. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, I just I can't believe that, that it's so obvious. Why wouldn't anyone warn me? Why wouldn't my mother warn me not to sling my lunchroom money in the Ziploc bag above my head while running through the room with the goal of hitting the chain on the fan, which was just out of my reach? I mean, that seems like the obvious thing that you would warn somebody about. You say, well, why would you need to be warned not to do that? Well, because the result was... A broken window in the house. That was the result. That bag of quarters slid right out of my hand and it smacked that window and it just broke all over the place. And um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. That just seems like an obvious thing to be warned about. But uh, my mom failed in warning me about that. And uh, anyways, no, uh, that was all my fault. But But all kinds of warnings that we need to be told in life. And Paul is going to issue a warning in this passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. If you'll remember that Paul is writing this letter to a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia that have had false teachers come in. And these false teachers' message is very simple and it's very wrong. The message is you need more than faith in Jesus to truly be saved. And what you need to add to that belief is Old Testament law. Basically, you must become a Jew if you want to really be saved. Very simple message, but very wrong. Because salvation, Paul argues all throughout this letter, and the rest of Scripture verifies as well, is through faith in Jesus alone. Because it's by God's grace alone. We don't work for our salvation. Now, once God saves us and gives us that free gift, then we have a lifetime full of good works that we want to do and we should do to bring glory and honor to the one who loved us enough to save us. But the way that we gain a right standing before God is not through those works. And so he's writing to warn these Galatians, to help these Galatian Christians, to help them think rightly about their salvation. Now, he hasn't addressed them specifically like saying, you do this or you don't do this or you remember this since the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where he said, you foolish Galatians, you, who, how did you get saved? How did you receive the Spirit? And then since then, through the rest of chapter 3 and then chapter 4, he's explained to them from God's word 
why salvation is through faith and not through works. Now he's going to come back and he's going to say, you, 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 you. And as he does, he's going to issue them a gospel warning. And that warning is don't turn back. Don't turn back. What Paul's going to say in this passage is that we must be on guard against the temptation to revert back to our pre-adoption state of being enslaved to a works-based salvation. In the previous passage, he talked about us being adopted by God. And we've been adopted out of our enslavement to trying to earn our salvation. And so the warning that he issues is, don't go back to that. Christian, someone who has experienced the grace of God, don't go back to that old way of living. That old way of trying to earn your salvation. Follow along with me as we read here in chapter 4 of Galatians, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Heavenly Father, as we have read your word and as we seek to understand it, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand what this passage means and to put it into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul gives several several, uh, truths about our temptation and our susceptibility to turn back to our former manner of life. And so I want to share with us three, three ways this morning that we can be on guard against this temptation to revert back to a dependence on works rather than continuing to depend upon the grace of God in our lives. The first is this. We must remember our former enslavement to false gods. Remember your former enslavement to false gods. Notice how he starts this passage. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That word that in my translation is translated formerly, it's literally the word but then. It's the words but then. So he's saying, but then, back in the past, but then, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. What is he trying to get them to think back to? He's trying to get them to think back to that time in their life before God had adopted them. And how does he describe it? You did not know God, and we'll talk about that word know in just a minute. But he says that you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to these Galatian believers. They're in this province that that would have been infiltrated at this day and time by the worship of Greek gods and goddesses. And so the former gods to which they were enslaved literally would have been those Greek gods and goddesses. We, we know this because when Paul went to this area on his first missionary journey, in one of the cities that is in the region of Galatia, they tried to say that Paul and Barnabas, Paul's traveling missionary companion, were the gods Zeus and, and then another one of the Greek gods. They, they said, hey, here are the Greek gods. They just showed up at our doorstep. And they tried to offer sacrifices to them. 
This was the lifestyle in which these Galatians had been saved out of. And so Paul says, formerly, but then, but back then, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not God's. Enslaved to those who by nature are not God's. The, the Bible talks of, describes these false gods that we're, we're tempted to worship and, and base our justification before God on. It describes them in two different ways. Sometimes the Bible calls them what I'm going to call nothing gods. They're nothing gods because they don't really exist. The, the Greek gods and goddesses in this day and time or whatever gods and goddesses that people invent, they're, they're absolutely nothing. In fact, if we were to turn to the book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 115, we find these words. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What's the psalmist saying? They're nothing. They don't really even exist. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he calls them so-called gods. So-called gods. Paul, in that, at that point in his letter to the Corinthians, he doesn't even want to call them gods because they're not even real. They're non-existent. They're what I call nothing gods. So-called gods, Paul says. But then sometimes in Scripture, we get the backdrop to these so-called nothing gods. And that is the demonic forces that are in our world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, we find this, uh, find Paul writing about these idols, the, the, these false gods. And he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And he's just echoing Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm going to flip there and I want to read this to you. And this is what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 32. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Even there in that passage, we have those two descriptions of these gods. He says there were no gods, like the, 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 the nothing gods, but he also says behind that are demons. And so Paul is reminding them of their former life before God adopted them. He said, well, that's all great for the Galatians, but I haven't been worshiping any Greek gods and goddesses lately. In fact, never in my past was I doing that. Here's Paul's main point. His main point is he asked them to remember, to, to think back to their former enslavement. His main point is that they were attempting to be justified before God or whatever God they believed in by their works, by their works. When Paul and Barnabas show up in the city and they think that they're, they're, they're Greek gods, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to sacrifice to them. And, of course, Paul said, no, 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 that's not who we are. That's not, don't sacrifice to us. I promise you, we're not any, we're not Greek gods here. But that's what they, why? Because they got to earn, they got to earn a right standing. They had to earn their eternity in 
heaven. Guess what? Before God adopted you and me, that was our mindset. I've got to do something in order for God to love me. I've got to do something in order for God to look on me with favor. It doesn't matter which gods and goddesses we worship. It doesn't matter what, our, what exactly the ins and outs of our pre-adoptive state was. We were enslaved. And Paul says, formerly, but then, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. We must remember our former enslavement to false gods, to this works-based attempt at justification. But notice the second thing that he says. That once we remember what God saved us from, then he says that we must understand our current relationship with the true God. Understand your current relationship with the true God. Verse 9, he says, but now, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. I'm going to stop right there. But now, that's why I wanted to, to, to bring out the way Paul starts this. It's literally, but then. And so he says, but then... But now, but then you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Notice the incredible transformation that has taken place. And Paul, Paul first describes it as us not knowing God and then us knowing God. But then he further clarifies himself and gives a, a more fundamental way of talking about our salvation. It's not simply that I now know God and that is what has saved me. The basis of my knowing God, notice verse 9, is that God knows me. But now that you have come to know God, and he kind of pauses and he says, or rather, to be known by God. And this word know is a very unique word. And we can go all the way back to the Old Testament and, and, and the Hebrew word for that. And, 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 it, and it has the idea of an intimate, intimate relationship. Even being used to refer to a woman and a man and a child that comes as a result of them knowing one another. An intimate, intimate relationship. And so Paul says, remember your enslavement and now remember that God knows you. That he has an intimate relationship with you. And as we talked about last week, that means that we have moved from being enslaved to that former manner of life, to being children of God, to being sons, that in, which, in which case we get to receive the inheritance that really only belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. I get to share in that inheritance. It's because God now knows me. And if you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the same is true of you. Not only did you know God, but God knows you. Not just knows about you. Of course, God knows everything in this world. But he has an intimate relationship with you. And so Paul says, understand your current relationship with the true God. Understand that it is by God's grace that you have been saved. It's not simply that you have just gained in your understanding and knowledge of who God is. 
It's not that I, I, I'm a Christian and I've been adopted by God and I'm now his child because I have studied hard and I've, I've gained this higher understanding of who God is. That's actually Gnosticism. That's what First John wrote his letter confronting. That false teaching. In fact, here's what First John, or John says in First John chapter 4, verse 10. He reminds them of God's work of salvation. He says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and set his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's what Paul is doing by throwing in that little phrase, or rather to be known by God. He's reminding them of grace. Remember, we've said several times as we studied this book of Galatians that Paul doesn't use the word grace a lot in this letter. He uses the word faith a bunch. But the reason he's able to use the word faith a bunch and say over and over again that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we're saved is because God saves us by his grace. It's a free gift. I don't earn his favor. He chooses to show me favor. That's what John is saying. And this is love. Not that I love God, but that he loved me. That's what Paul is saying. If we want to get to the heart of our salvation, it's not that I know God. It's that he knows me. And that's, a, that's something that only God could do. It's a free gift that he's given us. And therefore, throughout this letter, he says it's through faith alone. And so his main point then in that is that, that we've been transferred from this works-based salvation to a grace-based justification through his adoption of us he says remember your former enslavement understand your current relationship with god how awesome and how beautiful that is and that it's based on grace then you had no intimate relationship with god now you have an intimate relationship with god how god's grace Redemption purchased by Jesus and transformation in our hearts produced by the Spirit applied to our lives through faith. And so in light of this, Paul asks the question at the heart of this passage, why? Why then turn back? Understanding where you came from, understanding your relationship with God now, that it was a free gift, that he's graciously given it to you. Why then would you turn back to your former enslavement? He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The third thing he gives us to help us not fall into this temptation of turning back is this. Recognize your susceptibility to turn from the grace of God. Recognize your susceptibility to turn from the grace of God. You see, here's where we and the Galatian believers and every other, every other human that's walked the face of this earth, save the Lord Jesus Christ, have something in common. It's that by nature, being filled with sin from birth, by nature, in our pride, we want to say that we can do it. And we want to look to our own works. We want to look to the things that we've done as proof that God loves us. And as evidence that God should save me. 
and he should rescue me because of what I've done. Now, it's one thing for someone who's never experienced the grace of God to think that way. But what Paul is dealing with here are believers who have been adopted, who have understood the grace of God and have trusted in what Jesus did on the cross. And now they're turning back to their former way of life. These people who have said, oh, wow, we can't save ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us from our sin are now going I think I need to start doing these things if God's going to love me. These people who Paul said in the beginning of chapter 3, before your eyes, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He, he was saying, listen, I clearly explained to you that Jesus did all the work on the cross, everything that was necessary for your salvation. Jesus did all of that. And, and now they're turning back to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. To this way of living where they're depending upon their good works so that God will love them. Instead of depending on God's grace, knowing that God has chosen to love them in spite of who they are. And that way of life of depending on our works is a way of enslavement. I was talking with someone um, just, I think it was Wednesday night. We were talking after Bible study Wednesday night. And just talking about a life of thinking that if I don't do this, 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 and this, and this today, then God doesn't love me anymore. And when when I wake up tomorrow, I better do this, 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 and this. And if I get it wrong, God's going to withdraw his love from me. That's a life of fear. That is a life of enslavement. And God came to set us free from that by saying, listen, I love you in spite of who you are, and I'm going to transform you. And I'm going to cover you by the blood of Christ and by my grace. What's interesting in this passage is that the thing that they were going back to wasn't actually their Greek gods and goddesses. What they were being tempted to turn to was the Old Testament and the laws there and the way of that the Jews thought of attaining salvation, which was being obedient to the law and simply by trying to do the right thing that God would love them. Remember the false teachers that came in. What were they trying to do? They were Judaizers. They were saying, hey, you need to go back to the Old Testament law and you need to follow all those commandments. And if you don't do that, you're not really saved. So how do we know that's what they're teaching? Well, from the context of the letter as a whole, we know that they were Judaizers. But we also know from verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the days and months and seasons and years from the Old Testament that the people of Israel were commanded to obey. The days, Sabbath day. And the one-day feast throughout the year. Months. Numbers chapter 10, verse 10 speaks of new moon rituals that they would observe. Seasons. What's that referred to? Well, annual feasts in the life of the people of Israel, such as Passover or Pentecost. These annual feasts. Or, or years. What's he referring to there? Well, if you go back and study the Old Testament law, see that there was a year of jubilee. There was a sabbatical years. Where they would let all of their all their crops, all their land lie um, in rest, and they wouldn't plan anything. And and these were good things for the people of Israel to do. But what they did was they took what God had told them to do, and they depended on their obedience to it, 
to rescue them from their sin. But that wasn't the point of it at all. And now, these Galatians, who formerly tried to honor God, whatever God they were serving, by works, now had these Judaizers coming in, telling them the exact same thing, just from a different perspective. You've got to do something if you want to truly honor God. You've got to do something if you really want to be saved. This is an incredible statement for the Apostle Paul to make. Do you remember who Paul was in his former life? He was a Jew. And not only was he a Jew, he was a Pharisee. Which means he had devoted his whole life to understanding the Old Testament. And he had devoted his whole life to trying, and trying to observe all of the Old Testament laws, including these days and months and seasons and years. And while he was never ashamed, Paul was never ashamed of his background of being a Jew, he was ashamed that he thought that just by doing good works, he could be saved. And so you have here a former or a Jew who's a former Pharisee basically equating Judaism with paganism of Greek gods and Greek mythology. What? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't the at least the at least the Old Testament law and being a Jew shouldn't that be a little higher than trying to worship Greek gods and goddesses? Not if you're taking God's word and thinking that you have to obey it and be perfect or at least do enough more, do more good things than bad things in order for God to love you. See, here's here's what Paul is saying. It doesn't really matter what kind of religion they were going back to, they were turning to. If it was a religion based on your good works to earn you acceptance before God. If that's the religion that they were going back to, whether it was Judaism, whether it was Greek gods and goddesses, whether it was whatever, what I call, it could have been good old boy religion. That's what I call it. Where I go to church, and I try to, I try to give some money to the church, and I try to, help out some people from time to time. And because I do those things, maybe I even have a Bible and, hey, I may even read it once in a while. That God's going to look at those things that I do and He's going to save me. Paul says it's actually all in the same category. It's trying to add something to what Jesus did on the cross. And if you try to add something to what Jesus did on the cross in order to save you, what you're saying is what Jesus did on the cross is not sufficient to save you from your sin. Which is to throw out the whole gospel. To throw out the good news that God has done everything to save you from your sin. To save me from my sin. This is why they needed to be warned. How does he end this? He says, I fear I may have labored over you in vain. 
Because for them to add anything to what Christ did would be to reject the gospel. Do you know that you and I are tempted to do that? Do you know that we're susceptible? We're prone to do that even in our lives? You say, well, I... I'm not going back to worshiping Greek gods and goddesses. I'm not even going back to these Old Testament laws. I'm not trying to observe days and weeks and seasons and years. Sometimes we do. Sometimes people think if they show up to church on Christmas and Easter, that'll get them in good with God. What is that? Observing days. That's workspace. Even as Christians, even as Christians, even even as someone who has been who has been redeemed by the grace of God and has experienced the goodness and the freedom of that, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I could begin to look at the things that I do that I think are good in honoring the Lord and say, well, man, God must really love me. Now, I, get, I get up and preach every Sunday. I, I, can, see why, I, can, I can see why God saved me. Oh, I, I, I give my tithe. Every Sunday, I, I, I know I can see why God would love me. Oh, oh, I, I, I go to Sunday school. I don't just go to church at eleven o'clock. I go, to, I go to Sunday school at ten o'clock. I can see why God loved me. Are all those things good? Yep. Should we do those things? Hey, absolutely. But you see what happens when we take something good and we depend upon what I am doing for God to love me. I've completely turned the gospel on its head. And so the warning for us, even as Christians, remember he's writing this to Christians. The warning for you and for me as followers of Christ is that we wouldn't begin to depend on our works. That we would constantly depend upon the grace of God. Listen, I don't care how long you have been a Christian. I don't care how much service you have done in the kingdom of God. The only way you will stand before God one day and he will welcome you into his kingdom is because of what Jesus did on the cross. That doesn't mean we're not to serve him. It doesn't mean we're not to live for his glory as Christians. But what that means is none of those good works that we do add anything to the salvation that God has given us through his son. And if we begin to think that what we are doing makes us more worthy of our salvation, we are falling exactly into the trap of the Galatians. And Paul would say, what are you doing? Why are you turning back? You're going back to a life of slavery when Jesus Christ has set us free. By His grace, through His blood, shed on Calvary's cross. This warning is really for Christians. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you're still 100% dependent upon the cross of Jesus Christ to save you. This uh, this past weekend, um, I had an opportunity to uh, go to a graduation. And it was graduation of of my wife. She was graduating from school and so proud of her for that. We're sitting there in the graduation service, and I was sitting next to a guy. And, um, and the way they did the graduation, they, of course, didn't want you to clap after every name because you 
you know, it gets crazy and uh, can't hear all the names. Uh, but what they did say, they, they said, here's what we're going to let you do. Uh, when, when you're the person who you're here to support, that, their, that name is called, and they come across the stage, we're going to let you stand up. It was in a big chapel church-type building. We're going to let you stand up, and you can take pictures of them and just stand in honor of them. We'll recognize that you're here. And then as they walk across the stage, get a diploma, then you sit back down. And so it, was, that was, it, was, it worked well. It was quiet. So the person's name would be called. Their family would stand up. And you could see them you know, taking some pictures or video with their phones. And I would stay very quiet. And, uh, and so, so just so happened, the guy I was sitting next to, when the person he was there to support, uh, her name was called. And so he quietly stood up. And just like everybody else is doing, I wasn't thinking about any, you know. All of a sudden, though, so quiet in there, I hear I'm like, what in the world? And he's standing there next to me. And I looked up. He's got a disposable camera. And, and, and he, had, he had the length of that stage to get as many pictures as he possibly could. And so he started when, when, when that lady stepped up on the platform to walk across to get her diploma. It was, and I, I, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but when the room was quiet, it was loud. And so, it was, so he had that disposable camera. He was, he was zipping that little thing with his thumb as fast as he could go. All the way across. I mean, as fast. And I thought, my word, this is the 21st century, man. No offense to anybody that still uses digital cameras. But I thought, I thought but, but I thought, well, you know, let me be nice in my mind. Maybe, maybe he doesn't have a, a, a smartphone or something like that. Maybe couldn't afford one and and so that was the best he could do i thought that's fine that's great i'm glad that he's taking pictures no no harm done until until she comes back down and she's going to come and and sit she wasn't sitting just a couple of rows in front of us and then he pulls out his smartphone (laughs) and quietly starts taking pictures of her and i thought what in the world not only are those pictures not going to be near as good as if you just use your phone it was really loud and a lot of work. I mean, your thumb's probably going to be cramped up for a few days. It's probably got blisters on it. Here, here's the point. How foolish to go back to something that was really more difficult when you had access to the freedom of being able to quietly take really good pictures. As many as you wanted. You can take video and pictures at the same time. I wonder if that's what maybe Paul, kind of the mindset that he was in here. Why turn back? Why go back to that former way? It took so much work and didn't accomplish near as much. In fact, it accomplished nothing. Because our good works can never save us. When we have experienced the grace of God, why not just live in that? Moment by moment, day by day for the rest of our lives, waking up every day going, it's only by the grace of God that I'm saved today. And no matter how much I serve the Lord today, I'll go to bed tonight dependent only on the grace of God for my salvation. When I breathe my last breath, hopefully having served a life of complete surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it will still only be by the grace of God that I'm saved. And he's able to welcome me into his eternal kingdom. He's already called the Galatians foolish. 
And maybe he just didn't want to hurt their feelings by calling them foolish again. But it's there, even though he hadn't said it. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Heavenly Father, we love you. But Father, we thank you that you first loved us. Father, help us never to forget that. Father, help us to never try to go back to a way of life where we're trying to earn your love. Because you've already freely given it to us. Why would we do that, Lord? Father, we know that that's what Satan wants. And we know that we're tempted to do that. We're tempted to look at the things we do and to, and to think that somehow we're better than the person sitting in the pew next to us. To think that somehow the, the service that we do in your kingdom makes us more worthy of salvation. But Father, we need to be reminded every day that it's only by your Son shedding His blood on Calvary's cross that we could be justified before You. Father, would You help us to remember life before You adopted us and the futility of trying to earn our salvation. Father, would You help us to more fully each day understand our current relationship with You and how much You have loved us and changed us and given us by adopting us as Your children. Father, help us to be on guard every day knowing that not one of us is above being tempted to go back to our former manner of life. Not one of us is above being tempted to begin looking more to our works than to Your grace. To begin looking more to what we have done for you instead of looking to what you have done for us on the cross. Father, bring us back to grace each and every day so that you receive the honor and the glory due your name. Father, if there's someone here today who can't look back to a former way of life because They've never been set free from that former way of life. Father, I pray that today you would convict their hearts. That they would see your grace in a way they've never seen it before. As you open up their eyes to behold your love for them and your grace and your mercy poured out on Calvary's cross. And that today they would be set free from trying to earn your love. And they would receive the free gift of salvation. Father, help us just to be obedient to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.